Apprenticeships go back for eons in time. They became codified in the United States some 86 years ago with the enactment of the National Apprenticeship Act. Now the Labor Department has brought new focus to this part of job training through what it calls the Apprentice Trailblazer Initiative. For what that is and what labor hopes to accomplish, we turn to Senior Policy Advisor Manny Lamar. Mr. Lamar, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. A pleasure to be joining you. And let's start with the background here. Where does the whole idea of apprentices and apprenticeship live in the Labor Department, and how extensive is it in the United States? The National Apprenticeship Act really came about in 1937, but the concept of apprenticeship has always been around, has always existed, but it was codified in the 1937 National Apprenticeship Act. Now, when we think about apprenticeship, one thing that's important to note and differentiate is what's the difference between a registered apprenticeship and other forms of work-based learning, such as internships and other on-the-job training models. When we talk about registered apprenticeships here, we're talking about an industry-driven, high-quality career pathway that is validated by the U.S. Department of Labor. And it happens either through the U.S. Department of Labor or state apprenticeship agencies. But really, the core difference of a registered apprenticeship and why we call it the gold standard is that it includes paid work experience. It always includes paid work experience, classroom instruction, and a portable nationally recognized credential. And so when you put those together, that really sets it apart as the gold standard. And in addition to a credential, there's also components of diversity, quality, and safety that is embedded within our apprenticeship regulations at the Department of Labor. And so there's additional components to ensure that the apprentices are safe, they're protected, and that goes, again, all the way back to the National Apprenticeship Act. But within the Department of Labor, ETA, we have the Office of Apprenticeship, and that office really oversees apprenticeship really around policy across the U.S. Sure. And when you say nationally recognized credentials, aren't a lot of trades that have apprenticeships state licensing? I mean, how many are there that are actually requiring a national credential? I mean, give us some examples. Right. So when I talk about a national recognized credential, I'm talking about the certificate that you receive, the certificate of completion that you receive for completing the registered apprenticeships. States may have additional specific licensing required for particular occupations, but when we talk about a nationally recognized credential, we're talking about the national certificate of completion that is recognized across the country for completing the registered apprenticeship where they know that you completed a bona fide approved registered apprenticeship. Because these tend to center around the crafts and trades, am I correct in saying? Steam fitting, welding, electrical type of work that are highly skilled trades, but those tend to be localized types of licensing to actually execute as a profession. So that is somewhat correct. I think what's important to know is that historically, registered apprenticeship were and have been in the construction trades, whether we're talking about carpenters, plumbers, electricians, operating engineers, and so forth. However, I think what's important to know is that across the country, that there's registered apprenticeships across a variety of sectors, and that includes healthcare, cybersecurity, information technology. We even have them in education, and I can provide some quick statistics for you, for example, which is in the past year, we started off with K-12 teacher apprenticeships in two states about a year ago. Now we're at 21, going on 23 states and with over, you know, four dozen programs in K-12 teacher educations. 
We've have apprenticeships in trucking and we have apprenticeships in cybersecurity, uh, as I uh, mentioned. So registered apprenticeships really cuts across sectors in the country. But you're right in that the foundation has been in the building trades, but it really is existing across sectors. And we have the data on apprenticeship.gov that really shows the scale and scope of apprenticeships now in new sectors. We're speaking with Manny Lamar. He's a senior policy advisor at the Labor Department's Employment and Training Administration. And let's talk about the Apprentice Trailblazer Initiative that is new here on the 86th anniversary You could have done it on the 85th or the 90th, but 86th of the 1937 law. What is this initiative all about? What does it seek to do? Really, when we think about scaling registered apprenticeships across the country, we know a couple of things that are really important. Number one, it's very important to include the voice of young people. Number two, it's important to include the voice of individuals that actually went through an apprenticeship program. So the apprentice Trailblazer Initiative is really designed to create a national network of diverse apprentices and apprenticeship graduates of all ages and backgrounds to really serve as champions of registered apprenticeships. And we want them to share their perspectives, their success stories, and experiences as apprentices to really help elevate and support and scaling the registered apprenticeship system across the country. But that's really what it's at the core it is. It's sharing their perspectives and the benefits, providing examples of innovative ideas and strategies to strengthen and modernize and diversify the program, thinking strategically around increasing support for underrepresented populations um, and uh, underserved communities, as well as promoting and expanding awareness of registered apprenticeships for career seekers, really looking to get access to good quality jobs and stability for their families and within their communities. But that's really at the core of what the Apprentice Trailblazer is. So will people share videos of themselves talking about what's going on in their lives and how they became apprentices and what they accomplished? Will it be published stories? I mean, what form will all of this kind of promotion take? A few things and more to come. So it will include highlighting success stories, whether it's virtually highlighting, engaging with them in networks, in-person engagement, both virtual and in-person engagement. So to some of the examples that you mentioned, it would include things as, as videos, written, but mainly it's really around elevating their voices across both virtual and in-person engagement as well. But I do think one other thing that's important to highlight is like, why, if I'm an apprentice or an apprentice graduate, I might be thinking like, what's in it for me? Like, why should I become an apprentice trailblazer? And I think for that component, we really see it as a great opportunity for professional development. So when we think about continuing skill building, teamwork, leadership, you know, we see it as an opportunity to really help shape and modernize registered apprenticeships and reflect the various experiences of individuals but also, so again, to strengthen their network, serve as role models. We know that there are a lot of apprentices that want to support and serve as role models. So it's both really elevating their network and being able to receive professional development in, in network, as well as serving as mentors and supporting and sharing their experience as well through the national recognition. And do you think that there might be opportunity for other industries that don't have formal apprentice programs to see this and say, maybe this could benefit my industry also? That's a great point. Absolutely. It's partly that too, that you're absolutely spot on with that. It's not just the existing industries and sponsors and employers that have registered apprenticeships, 
that can see this and uh, and expand, but it's also those that don't have registered apprenticeship programs to also elevate and exceed the opportunities. What's in it for them? What's in it for their employees? We know that registered apprenticeship, the return on investment, there's a over 90% employees stay and retain on the job. We know that we have studies that shows that they're more productive. They're more likely to stay and retain. So those employers that don't have apprenticeships can see this as an opportunity as well to really expand on it. And for those companies or industries that have federally recognized or labor department recognized and certified apprentice programs, what is the advantage of having that to them? It's really about continuing to expand it, as I mentioned before, around the return on investment. Um, you know, for every one dollar um, investment that employers make, there's a you know one forty four in return. For every one dollar that the um, federal investments, there's twenty eight dollars in return. So I say that to say, you know, to your question around what's in it for them, it's really around continuing to elevate the best practices and the good examples that their companies are leveraging as part of the registered apprenticeship. But I do think one other thing that's important to highlight, you know, as we think about this is this is really part of our broader youth employment work strategy. And so within the Department of Labor, and it's almost 18 years now since we've launched a national youth employment strategy. And really, that really consists of a no wrong doors approach for young people, paid work experience and industry commitment. So this goes back to your question around the employers too, the industry commitment to young people. So this has been really the apprentice trailblazer is really synced around a broader. So it's not just an isolated initiative. It's really synced around a broader youth employment strategy that we see within the Department of Labor and ETA that really leads up to National Apprenticeship Week, November 13th to the 19th. So really the National Apprenticeship Week is a week of really highlighting opportunities within apprenticeships, highlighting success stories, various events and engagement across that um, National Apprenticeship Week. So all of this is really part of a broader strategy that we see within the Department of Labor. Manny Lamar is a senior policy advisor at the Labor Department's Employment and Training Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure to join you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously 
spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones 
that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, th- th- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me. Uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, Mm -hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when, when I was born, 
right? As I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.